whenever a particular thought comes in, you, you kind of question why you're having that. So for instance, maybe it might be, uh, am I going to experience, you know, get blisters on the run or something like that. And so it gives you an opportunity to cover all bases as well. So you would think, well, maybe it's because I'm wearing new shoes. So perhaps I should try my shoes in the days leading up, or perhaps I should try new socks or something like that so that you can alleviate these thoughts that are starting to creep in. So usually there is reason for the thoughts, but when it comes to the negativity, you've got to recognize that your brain is automatically going to try and alleviate that unsettling feeling of nervousness because it wants you to be in this nice homeostasis equilibrium. It doesn't want you to feel this awful, like gut-wrenching anxiety that comes with race day. So I think you need to recognize that, that it's a coping mechanism of your body to bring in these thoughts of, you know, stop, don't race, don't, don't do this. It's not nice. But once you get past that um, and you're able to deal with that, um, I think, you know, they can be really powerful. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and each week for the past five years, this podcast has shined a light on people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. For some, it takes years of sifting and sorting, while for others, it comes with one decision that shifts the trajectory of their lives. Bottom line, we are all here on purpose. There are no mistakes, and if you're feeling like you're still sifting and sorting, know that every moment is your purpose to find your purpose, and you just never know when it will show up. Our guest today is Ellie Salthouse, undeniably one of the hottest, and I should say fastest, triathletes in the profession right now. She is no doubt someone who is on purpose with what she came to this earth to do, and it all began at the age of 11. One morning while munching on her cereal, Ellie noticed an ad on the cereal box for the Weetabix Triathlon. She had her mom sign her up, she completed the race, started training with a coach the following week, turned pro at 17, and now resides under the esteemed guidance of Siri Lindley, our beloved guest from episode 39, which, oh my God, it feels like a million years ago. Initially an ITU pro, Ellie turned to half-distance triathlon in 2016 and finished her first season with four titles, multiple podium finishes, and a top 10 at the 70.3 World Championship. Clearly, Ellie, you were on to something at that point. At 28 years old, she is already a veteran in the sport of triathlon, and we're so excited to be in the company of such an amazing athlete whose beautiful personality only makes her light shine brighter. Ellie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. That was very flattering. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, we've done our research. We followed you. We're a big fan, and you are. You're just you're beautiful in your performances. You're beautiful on the outside, and your personality just. You know, all of that on the outside is a reflection of who you are inside. Thank you. I appreciate it. I like to try and inspire those around me and bring some positivity to everything I do. Yeah. Do you, uh, with that intro, fabulous intro, of course, uh, do you feel you're, you're doing what your purpose is on this, on this planet? Do you, f do you feel aligned with that? Like this is it? A hundred percent. I always knew growing up, uh, starting triathlon so young, um, I always knew that professional sport was kind of something that I wanted to pursue. Even at such a young age, uh, I dabbled in many different sports. I was always encouraged to try everything and participate in a number of 
team sports, individual sports and everything in between. Um, but I always knew I had a love for sport and if I could make it into my job, then I would love to do that. Um, obviously, I, I studied and went to school and finished school and all that, but I knew that, that sport was what I loved to do. And I guess I'm just lucky enough that I was able to turn my hobby into my job. And it feels like I'm definitely where I'm meant to be. Um, I'm very happy. I'm very healthy, obviously. And yeah, I, I just love what I do. And I don't feel like I work a day in my life. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy to say that I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's seven o'clock on a Monday and here we are doing an interview and we, just all day we're like, this is such an amazing day that we get to do what we love and we get to talk to people who are, who are also doing what mm-hmm. they love. Um, and so I know one of the things you love to do is travel and you haven't been traveling at all. Um, your last race that I could trace was in 2019 in, um, uh, Bahrain. And so, with 2020 really shifting, of course, how do you feel like it set you up for success? Because, girl, you are on fire. You've had three races, three wins. You were the fastest swimmer, biker, and runner last, um, actually, a couple weeks ago now at Ironman um, Julong. So how do you feel like 2020 set you up to just come out of the gates? Like, um, what's that horse they made a movie about so- it? Um, <laughs> yeah, or there was another one. I can't remember, but like, that's you. I feel like you were like in the gates and I don't know what you were doing in the gates, but you are crushing it. Thank you very much. Um, I guess 2020 gave me an opportunity to have a really nice foundation and, and a really big, uh, off season, essentially. Um, I was able to really knuckle down with Siri, my coach, and we decided that instead of dwelling on what could be or any potential races that may or may not go ahead, that we would just lay some foundations and then we would just work on our weaknesses. So I think that's exactly what we did. I just put in a lot of hard work. And I think the key for 2020 for me was just I was able to put in some consistent work um, across the, the nine to 12 months that we had without racing. So being able to have a really consistent block like that meant that I got to this year ready to race and I had already done that that off-season block that I would typically be doing probably now. Uh, so I'm just ready to race and I'm ready to race a lot earlier than I normally am in the year. Mm. So I feel like 2020 was a great opportunity to be able to strengthen my weaknesses and and hopefully strengthen my strengths so that everything is on a more level playing field at a better level than it's ever been before. Does that sort of wane a little bit without having that carrot of the racing ability or was, you know, in training, were there sessions that were really trying to, to raise your engagement level, I guess, your focus? Yeah, I mean, of course, without racing, there's always going to be a little bit of a struggle with motivation. Um, and Siri and I have always been big believers in knowing our why. So for me, I want to become a world champion. Uh, So, I mean, as long as I have that in my head and I know why I'm getting up every single morning to go out and train and give my all, then I really have no problems doing that. Uh, But yeah, I think having that big goals really helped me to stay focused while there was no racing last year. But now that there is racing, no problems with motivation and getting the sessions in and getting them in really well. And so now you weren't the only one that in 2020 was able to really hunker down and without the, like the physical stress of training, a lot of people are like mending off of, you know, maybe some 
niggles and things in their body that have been plaguing them and things like that. So who are you keeping your eye on, if anyone, who's who also has maybe come out of the gates pretty strong? Um, you know, not, uh, and I think, you know, one we're always keeping our eye on with you is Amelia Watkinson, who's just been on your heels the last couple of races. But is there anybody else that you're watching like, woof, 2020 served them well? <laughs> well, you can never write off any of the big players. They know when to to peak and I think later this year we'll really be able to see who's put in some good work in 2020 but of course Danielle is already off to a great start we've got Imogen Simmons off to a great start as well and of course Jodie Stimson who will be vying for the Olympic Games so I think she might be one to watch either later this year or what or next year once uh post Olympics so yeah I mean you can never write anybody off there's always going to be girls coming through and girls that are faster than you so it really just elevates you and, and lifts that benchmark. So you've got to keep your eye on everybody. But for now, Amelia is my biggest rival here. And we've met at the last four races, soon to be five next weekend. So, um, yeah, it's really nice to have something like that because it keeps you motivated. It keeps you working hard because anytime you know, you waver for just a second, she's right there on my heels. So I just need to be at you know, a really high level for as long as possible. And, yeah, hopefully that's enough. And so why, why is she kind of your biggest, is, is it the Collins Cup? Because you guys are vying for a spot for that. Um, is that one of the reasons or the main reason? Yeah, I think so. We're definitely, we're sitting fifth and sixth at the moment on the Collins Cup rankings. So neither of us have an automatic qualifying spot. So we're both vying for the two uh, uh, captain's pick spots. So a little bit of that. But then also I think at the moment where the top two females in Australia and unfortunately no one can travel out here so we're sitting kind of one and two in the rankings for all of these national level races so yeah I guess there's you know for her she wants to try and beat me and I want to try and stay ahead of her and yeah I've got a little bit of a target on my back so I think that makes the rivalry a little bit stronger as well. Yeah and you know if you want to be world champion there's only one world champion at a time. Exactly. One a year. That's what makes it so special. (laughs) It's real. It's going to be well earned. I, you know, I don't think anybody's going to doubt that. So can you explain a little bit? The Collins Cup is kind of unprecedented. It's the first year. Can you kind of explain to people what, what it's about or, or, uh, why it is that you're trying to vie for a captain's pick? Yeah, so essentially it's three teams. We've got the Americas, the European team, and then the internationals, which is the rest of the world. Each team have four uh, automatic qualification spots based on your uh, ranking and your performances from 2020, the end of 2019, and up to August this year. Uh, and then there's each team also has two captain's picks. So they're not necessarily the fifth and sixth in the rankings. They may be a a bit of a dark horse or someone that may be able to help somebody in that top four to get a better position. Uh, But essentially, yeah, the race is in August and we go there to Slovakia and we'll be racing as a team, but I guess we all race um, and then hopefully the team internationals, which I may or may not be a part of, gets out on top based on the overall positionings of the participants. Yeah, it's super cool. I was looking at the website today and it's like 
the three teams will have one representative per race and the races go mm-hmm. off like every 10 minutes and it's a half distance triathlon. And I think there's like mm-hmm. 12 races or something. I think, is that right? I think there's I about think so. 12. There's 12. Anyway, athletes, super cool. Yeah. So if anybody who's listening to this is curious about it, it's a really fun read on the website. It's like, um, just bringing this whole new angle uh, and and bringing competition to a new level, and I think mix and matching people that perhaps uh, would not be you know teammates um, working together, and uh, yeah, so we'll put that link in the show notes. But is this something that the PTO put together? Is this a PTO race? I mean, I yeah, know it's a P- they're is- supporting it, but they created it. Yeah, the PTO created it to create almost this like uh, I guess atmosphere that people can get behind their country or their uh, region. So it creates a bit of uh, inter international kind of rivalry, I guess. So yeah, it just adds another element of exciting excitement to it. And it's a totally different format to what we're used to as well. And as you said, we get to race with people that we wouldn't normally consider teammates. So especially being the internationals team, we've got the rest of the world with vying for a position on the team. So, yeah, I mean, it's exciting and it gives us something a little bit different to what we're used to as well as athletes. And how is the PTO, or what is your perception of how the PTO has embraced triathlon over the past 12 months, 12, 18 months? We've seen it from a spectator side. Just This is phenomenal coverage, phenomenal um, exposure and support for the athletes. How has it affected you during this, during this time? Well, essentially, without the PTO, the professionals would have had a really difficult time in 2020 and 2021. So we're very fortunate financially to have the backing of the PTO and to form this group that supports the athletes, not only financially, but, uh, you know, in many other ways. Um, We've got races, they're supporting uh, grassroots level races that typically wouldn't have the exposure that they've been able to get. Um, The PTO have put, obviously, as you said, a bunch of coverage into the sport to be able to give us exposure uh, and coverage. And yeah, I mean, they're great at promoting the athletes and and the PTO as a whole just wants to bring the, uh, the athletes to the forefront and really just give them the exposure they deserve um, and be able to have the athletes be solely athletes and race professionally and not have to worry about financial burdens or, you know, the inability to travel, inability to race in their region. They just want to cover all bases to have the professionals doing what they love and be able to do it well without worrying about anything. So, yeah, it's an incredible concept. And we as professionals are so grateful that this organization has formed. Is there any added, um, because of the coverage, like we're, we're seeing like live coverage, we're not just seeing like a camera or live results. Does it add anything to you? I mean, you're at the front a lot anyway, but do you feel like having that camera on you um, changes anything in your racing or wanting to be in the front? Like, you know, you're on camera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I know. I guess like when you know people are watching you, you always find that a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit easier to give more uh, when you're when you know that the, the, potentially the rest of the world could have eyes on you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you find a little bit more. But for me, I just kind of like to head down, bum up and just race my own race. So it doesn't really change for me. But it's always nice having a camera on you It means you're doing well. It means you're, you're kind of in the forefront of the race, I guess. So 
that's always special. Yeah, well, you always look gorgeous at races, which, you know, some <laughs> people might you. be rolling their eyes right now, but... <laughs> You know, doing what what we do in endurance sports, it's it's very young, it's very masculine. It's a lot of masculine energy, competition, and you know, sweat, and and so <laughs> I've always been somebody who's appreciated a fellow female athlete who paints her nails, and you know, like, <laughs> 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 I was actually yeah. just taking cues from that <laughs> ring finger that's got gold on it. Yeah, uh, no, well, I, I love gold? that. <laughs> You know, I love that. I don't think that to be a strong woman that we need to, you know, if we, as I like to say, if I want to dress up my doll, you know, let me dress up my doll. It doesn't mean that I don't uh, appreciate women or that I want them to have fair pay or I want, you know, as many women as men go into Kona. It just means that I have fun with this you know, this body I get to live in, the one that gives back so much. So, um, yeah, we've been watching those races, and you look amazing. Uh, I love well, the PTO. However, the, the PTO is affecting my training in an adverse way because I'm finding that I'm drinking a lot of coffee and eating a lot of pancakes while we're watching this coverage because you can't pull yourself away. Yeah, and the time difference is a bit is a bit off for you guys watching races over here in Australia. So yeah, my <laughs> sleep is off. My, <laughs> yeah. they need to, so the PTO needs to have a sub a sub organization for like struggling age groupers <laughs> because of the PTO. So that's my suggestion. <laughs> we'll bring it forward. And, yeah, and in and in um, in return, we'll give them our really good pancake recipe. That's what we we'll do. <laughs> Perfect. That's a good trade-off. Yeah, yeah. We have a really good pancake recipe. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, we had Siri on the podcast back in 2016. We had a really beautiful conversation with her. And um, she told a story, which I know she's told many times, and I, she even wrote it about it in her book. And I, I it was, um, you know, leading up to the Sydney Olympics and she, I think it was the Olympic trials, right? Yeah. And she was like visualize, you know how disciplined she is, like visualizing, visualizing, visualizing. And in, in the process of that got really attached and a lot of pressure. And so the first thing that went wrong in the race, like she just fell apart. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we learn from the adversity in our life as much as we don't want to be in it when we're in it. But how has she shaped you or guided you on this mental aspect of training, which, you know, now you've got the world, right, watching you. You've got somebody <laughs> right on your heels that's, you know, what probably wants to be a world champion too. That's a, that can be a lot of pressure. There can be a lot of emotional attachment to how you're going to perform. And so how has Siri guided you with, you know, her experience? And she's, you know, she's a legend and she's been in the sport for so long and, and just being able to sit with her in person and have this interview, I can just, I can feel her kindness, but also she's fierce. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, having Siri as my coach is incredible because she puts such importance on the emotional and psychological well-being of the athlete rather than just the physical well-being. So I think Siri and I really make an incredible team because for me, I've always struggled with uh, as a younger athlete, um, my the probably more the psychological aspect of sport. I have had experiences in the past where I haven't been able to perform under pressure, just as she experienced in that uh, in the Olympic trials. So I think 
coming through and having those experiences of my own, I've definitely grown as an athlete, but then having Siri experience the same things as an athlete is really powerful because she's been in my shoes and the ability to share those experiences with me makes it feel like it's, it's okay. You know, we're all going to have these days, but as long as you learn from them and Siri is one of those people that's just so motivating and so inspiring that she just makes you want to get the best out of yourself. So before race day, Siri sends me a huge voice note um, and it just really gets me in the moment, gets me in the zone and just makes me want to give more of myself. So that's something that, you know, is really important to me is having, you know, knowing that she's there with me even when she's not. And uh, yeah, it's, it's important that I have experienced the rough patches that I have. Um, I think for me, the hardest thing was to, Worlds in 2019 when I got a mechanical because I put all my eggs in that basket just as she did for the Sydney trials. And um, when things didn't really go right, it took me a while to get over that. But having her, having gone through similar experiences, we were able to just talk it out and just work together and throw ideas around and, and move forward from that. Um, and I think, as you said, it really shapes an athlete adversity. So I wouldn't change anything. And uh, I think I've definitely grown from those experiences that I've had. But yeah, it's not always easy to take it in your stride at, the, at that time. But with Siri's help, we, we always overcome things and, and we always learn from them. Um, whether I like it or not, we always take something mm. positive away. <laughs> well, we try to, uh, whether it's in that moment or further down the track, there's always something you can take away that that's going to help you grow for the next one. Yeah, if we can, if if we can look at things as happening, you know, for us, not to us, you know, get the, mm -hmm. the bigger picture that there's something for us to learn from every experience, we can walk away and, and apply it to our training and then our, our future races. Um, do you have any, do you practice any, do you have any tools that you work with or, or um, mindset practices that you use to sort of visualize or, you know, come into calm and, and peace and, and, and harmony before you go into um, extreme workouts or, or races? Yeah, so every morning uh, I do a bit of a priming exercise. Siri's a huge believer in, in priming. So wake up in the morning and basically just get yourself ready for the day with some mantras and some like questions and positive affirmations, that kind of thing. Um, just remind myself of my why, um, why I want to get through this workout, uh, how I'm going to do that, why, why it's important that I nail this session, uh, the purpose of the session, um, and then obviously remind myself of the ultimate goal in the end. Um, and that just gets me in a really good frame of mind and motivates me. And like, you know, there's just no questions as to why I'm getting out of bed that day. So I think that's really important. Um, and then also I like to write in a gratitude journal in the evenings. Um, I just find that it's really nice to be able to put some gratitude out there and be thankful for all the things you do have, especially if you've had a rough day. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things to be grateful for. And when things aren't going your way, it's often to, it's often hard to, to remind yourself of all the good things. So I do that, but yeah, before a race, um, there's definitely a lot of visualization that goes into it. I mean, I have visualized the world championships multiple times a day for the last, 
probably 10 years. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, every single race I visualize the course, I visualize how I want to feel. I see myself crossing the line. I see myself in key moments of the race of the race. And I see the reaction that I would like myself to take at each of those pivotal moments in the race. Um, so I think seeing yourself performing, um, the, the, uh, ideal circumstance is important because then you know in that moment when you come to a decision that you're going to make the right one so yeah for me it's important to visualize that and just remind myself that I have a choice in every single moment and I get to take I either choose the easy option or the hard option that's going to get the reward that I want so that's that's it (laughs) So it sounds like uh, you were just referencing 2019 when you had the mechanical and you're talking about the world championship, um, which I can imagine knowing more about your story as I was digging in a little bit more in preparation for this interview, you had been coming off like a really long journey with an injury and you were like ready, like you were, you know, I'm sure visualizing that podium that day. And so for people who may not know, um, you had a, you had a mechanical on the bike where the, um, the shifting stopped working. And I believe, did you finish that bike in like a single gear, which is insane because (laughs) you finished the race, like you got into transition and you finished the race. So, and and I'm bringing this up because you, well, you had mentioned it, but that seems like that was a really heavy, that was a really heavy thing to let go of, a really heavy thing to move through. And sometimes when it's heavy like that, it's, it's, do you, have you, did you find this, that it's too, it's like too far of a jump to go positive on it, that you need to stay in a little bit in that disappointment and that emotion. And I, I find that there's a lot of grace there, um, but I'm interested to how you navigated that. Like, did you just allow yourself to kind of be in that and know that it would pass? And then when the gratitude felt reasonable again, you could start bringing that back in? Yeah, well, I think uh, a disappointment can be really powerful. Um, of course, at the time, it doesn't feel like it's it's going to bring any good but um for me as soon as that incident happened I was of course devastated I had put all my eggs in that basket and that was going to be my day but it wasn't meant to be and I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason so whatever reason that was that just happened like that but as soon as I got on the phone after the race Siri told me okay we're going to get on a plane next week you're going to race in two weeks uh, another half we're going to use this fitness that we have and we're going to use it for something good so immediately that switched something in my brain that told me, okay, back to work. We've got something something positive to get out of this. Um, I'm so fit. I'm healthy. I don't have any injuries. So why wouldn't I be excited to use this? So I think it can be very powerful. When I was standing on the start line of that second race in Cozumel, I just had this fire, this burning, you know, this energy to just get out there and show people that what I wasn't able to show two weeks earlier. So I think, yeah, there's some very good things that can come of disappointment. And even now I haven't had the opportunity to stand on another world championship start line since 2019, obviously with COVID. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I'm carrying that into the 2021 world champs and I hope that I can use that disappointment to fuel an incredible result in St. George this year. Yeah, you feel that fire burning now? 
Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I saw a recent post of yours about the pre-race nerves, since we're kind of talking about like mindset and stuff, pre-race nerves. And um, yeah, what do you do for those? Like breath, like breathing or your mantras maybe, or how do you... How do you navigate those pre-race nerves? Because you can't just shut those off. Like that's a physiological response that's happening, right? Like excitement and nervousness and all of that. How do you navigate those? Uh, yeah, I think nerves are really good. Um, for me, if I'm nervous, it means that I care. So that's mm. something that I always want to carry with me into the race, particularly race morning. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, they're definitely, you can't turn them off. You can't get rid of them until that gun goes off. But I think for me, it's important to have a routine race morning so that I just don't get caught up in the nerves. So I know that step by step, my exact routine up until that gun goes off. So at no point am I questioning what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, or I'm letting the negative thoughts that often creep in with nerves. I'm not letting them get the better of me. So um, because I have a job to do and I know that. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's important to also acknowledge nerves and to recognize them as a really great thing. And and the adrenaline that comes with them too is really going to help you perform. So they're not definitely not a bad thing. And they're not something that you want to ignore. They're just something that you want to take with a, a grain of salt, you know, and just know that they're there, but know that the thoughts that come with them aren't always uh, true or relevant. So just get on with what you need to do and get to that gun and know that, you know, it will uh, pass once, once you get out there. And you've been, you've been, so I want to pull on this. You've been racing for a long time, a long time. How many years? Uh, years? 17 years. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, since the Weedabix triathlon. Did you have, like, what, can you recall being nervous then? Because I'm, I I can imagine you, now that you have more experience and and the tools and a coach and and experience that it's a little more um, easier to work through, but as a younger triathlete, did you, were the feelings more intense, more debilitating, more um, fearful than, than, than they are exciting now? I definitely struggled a lot when I was younger with nerves and uh, I would just completely let them get the better of me as a younger athlete and often I perform, I ter- performed terribly because I just couldn't get past these negative this negative mindset that nerves would put me in before a race and it became a bit of a roadblock for me. Um, so I, I decided that I would uh, see a sports psychologist. Um, so when I was about 15, I started seeing a sports psychologist because I was just sick of getting to race day and just crumbling under this pressure when I knew I was capable of so much more. Uh, so we built a really great toolbox and we were able to just get some tools that I needed uh, for, especially for race day, but also the few days leading up um, that would help me manage these nerves. So I definitely think it's a, it's a great part of, uh, of racing when you know how to manage them, but it can be difficult finding ways that work for you uh, to be, to manage them. So for me, it's all about acknowledging the thoughts, but also replacing them with a more positive uh, constructive thought that's going to help you better yourself rather than go the opposite direction. Yeah. And, you know, you said something that is so profound um, a l- just a few minutes ago that, you know, the feelings that you're having are real, but the thoughts about them, 
those are rare. They're rarely true. Like if you can, if you can take a breath and just zoom out a little bit and see what's happening in the moment, like the feeling, like you can't deny the feeling, right? Like it's everywhere. It's in the tips of your fingers, but the thoughts are, they can be crazy, you know, they're not helpful. And so for most people, there's no set, there's no delineation there. There's no separation there. You know, the thoughts and the feeling like are, you know, come together. And so I know this is probably over the years of just kind of watching these and seeing these thoughts and, and it's not about making those thoughts go anywhere. It's guiding your focus to something that is helpful, you know, in that moment. So when you were younger, like back when you were 15, what was one of the first tools that you started using that, that you remember being really helpful? Well, I think initially I started with writing down all the negative thoughts that came with nerves or pressure or anxiety. And then literally right next door to that, I would write down a a similar thought, but one that actually was constructive. So it basically acknowledged that I was feeling this certain way or had this particular thought, but then turned it around to something that was really going to be helpful. Uh, So it or it turned it into... uh, something that you you couldn't deny. So maybe looking at some data or your training or um, my my uh, training diary, for instance, um, being able to look at that, you know, it changed it so that I couldn't deny that thought that was the positive, uh, true thought that was. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was a really good tool, being able to replace thoughts um, Whilst I think it's really important to acknowledge why you're thinking these things too. So uh, whenever a particular thought uh, comes in, you you kind of question why you're having that. So for instance, uh, maybe it might be, uh, am I going to experience, you know, get blisters on the run or something like that. And so it gives you an opportunity to cover all bases as well. So you would think, well, maybe it's because I'm wearing new shoes, so perhaps I should try my shoes in the days leading up or perhaps I should try new socks or something like that so that you can alleviate these thoughts that are starting to creep in. So usually there is reason for the thoughts, but when it comes to the negativity, you've got to recognize that your brain is automatically going to try and alleviate that unsettling feeling of nervousness because it wants you to be in this nice homeostasis equilibrium. It doesn't want you to feel this awful, like gut-wrenching anxiety that comes with race day. So I think you need to recognize that, that it's a coping mechanism of your body to bring in these thoughts of, you know, stop, don't race, don't, don't do this. It's not nice. But once you get past that um, and you're able to deal with that, um, I think, you know, they can be really powerful. Yeah, I, I love when you, for number one, acknowledge them. Like don't, yeah. th- that's something I had to, had to learn. Um, as someone just always being very positive, I had, a very, had very positive influences, very young in my life. And so it was just always positive, positive. But then it's like if you're a really positive person and you start feeling negative or you start feeling sad or something, it's like, 
wait, I'm not supposed to feel this way. And so you can deny them, right? And then you stuff them and then that's no good because that's going to turn into something. Um, (laughs) But acknowledging them, and I love, I love, I don't know if that ever happened to you, but it happened to me. I love like, write them down. Just don't judge it. Just, just dump it, you know, dump it in your journal, dump it down, let it, let it go. Uh, Acknowledge that they're there. And then um, pulling on evidence of all your training, you know, pulling mm-hmm. on that to help to support the change or the replacement of the thoughts, but also by just understanding why am I having these, right? Well, my I'm hardwired for safety and comfort. Yeah. And there's nothing about going for the world championship that's safe or comfortable. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it will be when you're standing there and you're getting your picture taken, but there's nothing safe and comfortable. And so when you just recognize it, it's like you, there's a degree of, I think a degree of emotion that gets pulled out. Like it, those negative thoughts kind of get disempowered. They don't have such a hold on you anymore when you just recognize that it's just a very natural reaction. It's just a protective mechanism. But Mm -hmm. for you to be able to do this, like you're getting into this gap area, right, between the stimulus and the response. And I I would think it's just from all the years, you you have a lot of skin in the game at this point, you know, and starting (laughs) with this type of mind training when you were 15 (laughs) years old. Um, so we, before we got on, uh, hit record, we were talking about our mutual friend, Troy, uh, who we love dearly. And we, he's been on the podcast like four or five times, I think at this point. Um, (laughs) but anyway, he was talking about how you, you're like a leader for, you know, in, in the squad, right? Like under you're a bit of a leader. You have, like I said, you have a lot of years in the game. How do you balance that? Like being a leader, but also being a friend to your teammates. And I know things have changed, but I'm assuming that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you guys are still connected as a community somehow, right, during this time. How do you balance that between being like a leader on the team, but also being a being a fellow athlete? Yeah, well, I think it really helps that Troy and, and the the other athletes on the squad have a great relationship. We're all really great friends, uh, aside from being training partners. Uh, so I think that really helps. But as a leader, I feel like I have so much experience to share. As you said, I've been in this game for a really long time. I mean, 17 years racing has to have, you know, ha- have some experience that comes with it. So I feel like even though Troy and the other athletes might be older than me, I feel like in race age, I have so much to share with them and so much to offer. Um, so I think they respect that and they know that, you know, with all my race experience that I am going to call them out if I need to, or I'm going to, you know, encourage them to do something a different way or encourage them to try this or, you know, work harder because, you know, this is what the reward is. Um, and I think they really respect that. And we have such a great friendship and a, and a, like, uh, I guess a training relationship that, yeah, I mean, I'm always going to try and get the best out of them and likewise. So it works both ways. And I think having that, that two-way street is what makes it incredible. Um, and I'm able to, you know, help them achieve their goals as much as they are mine. So even though I may be a, a leader as such in the in the team, I definitely feel like I'm on par as far as, uh, you know, respect and uh, achievement goes. 
And in terms of in terms of the team, the training, um, this is the first time in a while you've been uh, sequestered to Australia, and you haven't made your trip to Boulder, which is a, a place dear to our hearts. We lived there for for ten years. Um, do you miss not being in that uh, environment of training at um, at elevation and in the Boulder vibe? Yeah, hundred percent. I miss it so much. This uh, actually, this week is when I'm normally packing up to head over to Cal- California to Oceanside to race the seventy point three, and that I usually go into Boulder for the summer. So. This will be my second year not having gone to my second home. So I do miss it. I really miss it a lot. And I really miss having that face-to-face time with Siri and with my teammates. Uh, you know, it's really nice to have people around you with uh, who are like-minded and with the same goals that you're trying to achieve. It really helps you get the best out of yourself. So, yeah, I, I do miss it. And I, and I miss the training environment, the squad environment. I miss Boulder for its beautiful, you know, training facilities, the mountains. So, yeah, but I mean, I'm really safe here in Australia and and I don't want to jeopardize that. And I'm just being grateful for what I do have here. I mean, this is my home, my family, my friends are all here. So it's really nice to be able to stay here for a little bit and feel feel a bit more settled uh, rather than living out of a suitcase for a while. So, yeah, it does have it have its perks uh, being ha- been forced to stay here in Australia. <laughs> what is um? And we the, have and we have racing here, so we're very yeah. Lucky. <laughs> you you and Amelia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Renee, 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 Renee. Oh yeah, and Renee, Renee Kylie. Kylie yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's, what there's, is it? There's a, a handful of us. <laughs> yeah. What is it about Boulder? Like I know what drew us there, but what is it about um, Boulder, Colorado, that keeps you coming back and and um, making it a big part of of your training, making it a big part of who you are as a triathlete? Yeah, well, aside from the the mountains, the trails, the actual you know elevation, the place itself, I feel like everybody who lives in Boulder is so like minded. You know, they're all healthy, fit, eat really well even the ones that aren't athletes. So I think when you surround yourself with with like-minded people and people like that, it makes you, you know, it automatically conform to that to that lifestyle. So I think it's really easy to get up in the morning and go out and train when everybody else around you is. It's just kind of the norm there. So yeah, I really like that. I like the the vibe. I love how friendly everybody is. I love how there's communities of you know, triathletes, runners, cyclists, but then when it when it comes to it, they all come together, and and I really like that. So I do miss it. <laughs> yeah, we we lived there for a long time. It's a it's a lovely place, but it gets cold in the winter. So you have had yeah, you've had like the best of both worlds because you're doing summer and summer essentially, <laughs> but now you're going into exactly. winter. Yeah, well, I usually have summer all year, so I'm very lucky. Although when I get there in April, we get like three or four snows before it does actually warm up. So I I don't know. know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned um, you mentioned trails. And so I'm assuming maybe you do some trail running when you're there. Maybe you do. I'm I'm not sure if you have trails around where you live now. But what do you think the benefit is of training for um, triathlon, doing cross-training on the trails? Well, I'm a bit of a liability on the trails, to be honest, but... (laughs) 
Uh, I have been known to roll a few ankles, uh, <laughs> but um, I do see a lot of benefit in it in the off season. For me, I can't risk running trails. I mean, like hardcore trails when I'm in my race season, uh, purely because I can't be trusted. But uh, when I am in the off season, it's great. I love using it as a tool because it's just so much softer on your joints and it does force you to slow down, um, run a true easy pace and just enjoy the moment, essentially. Um, you can go for a long, a long time on the trails um, and, you know, have very low impact on the body. So I really like it from that perspective. And it's just something different, you know. I think the off-season should be all about doing things you love and enjoy whilst getting fit and whilst building for the season ahead. So it's something I really enjoy. It's different. It's It takes me to some beautiful places. So I really enjoy doing that in the off-season. Mm. What else do you love outside of triathlon? Uh, I love socializing, seeing your family, friends, all that kind of stuff, going to the beach. Um, I am at uni. I can't say I love studying, but it's something that I do have to do outside of triathlon. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I like to just, I don't know, be, I like baking and cooking, all those kinds of things that, you know, I don't always get to get the pleasure of doing because I'm always training or, you know, rushing around or going between sessions. So I like to just slow down a little bit um, when I get the opportunity. What are you studying in, um, at uni? I'm studying nutrition and dietetics. Ooh. What have you yeah, learned so far? it kind of so goes far. hand in hand. <laughs> please, yeah. please share. Um. What, have you, what have you learned? Because we're currently water fasting one day a week, giving that a try. Yeah, we've been, um, we just came ooh. off a fast. We, we ate before we nice. got on the call on. with you. Yeah. yeah, so we could have food in our brain. But I love it because <laughs> it get, like, kind of puts you into this hyper alert state. But yeah. Um, yeah, what, is, what are you taking away so far? I don't know how deep you're into it, but is there any... Anything that really yeah, well, I'm about halfway through. Um, and uh, yeah, I've basically taken away, well, I haven't really taken too many specifics for my profession, I guess, but I am learning um, kind of micronutrients and the importance in the body of, the, you know, the role of each nutrient and basically the way it reacts in the body and produces a different outcome, essentially. So I think for me, I really am looking forward to learning about um, how things uh, react differently in each different person's body because at the moment we're learning kind of things as a whole, um, but I know that everybody reacts differently. So that's kind of the thing that I'm most looking forward to. But, yeah, I mean, I haven't really taken – I haven't really changed too much about my own uh, diet yet. Um, I just don't <laughs> have enough experience to be able to – uh, play with those kinds of things, um, but I have worked myself with a dietitian in the past, so um, I hope to be able to do that and be able to help not only myself but others as well um, with working with that once I get through. <laughs> what is um? What does your nutrition look like? What's a typical day? Give us a rundown. Um. Yeah. So I usually wake up uh, depending on. The session, uh, I might just have a banana and a coffee before I head out for the first session, depending on the length. If it's going to be probably two plus hours, um, I'll probably have a full breakfast. So I'll have uh, toast with avocado um, and sometimes an egg as well. Um, and then, yeah, head out for my first session, come back, depending on the time, I might have a snack. So I might have some rice cakes and cream cheese, or I might have 
um, yogurt, granola, that kind of thing, um, or lunch, um, which usually consists of, you know, a wrap or a sandwich, lots of salad, a little bit of protein, whether that be plant-based or meat. Um, I try and do kind of uh, four days plant-based and then three days not, but usually, yeah, I usually try and mix it up between different types of protein sources as well. Um, and then, yeah, I'll snack again in the afternoon. So same kind of thing. It might be some fruits, some rice cakes, rice crackers, hummus, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then in the evening, uh, kind of the same thing. I always add like a portion of carbs and then salads, vegetables, and then a protein source as well. So pretty standard, pretty healthy. What do you crave? Like, what are your cravings? Do you ever have any, like, like, are you a chip girl? Like, what do you crave? Cookies. Yeah, cake. I do. I do love chips, salt and vinegar. Um, I think especially when I've had a really hard session, because it's just like that salty, savory kind of taste that I'm really craving. So I do let myself have a few, a few chips um, if if, I, if that's what I'm craving. Um, otherwise, I do crave ice cream sometimes. So that's my kind of guilty pleasure is ice cream. So uh, I'll let myself have it maybe maybe once a fortnight when I'm in my race season, but in the off season, maybe once a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about um, giving in to temptation at the right times of the season. Uh, but I don't feel like it's something you should be doing on a daily basis, but definitely every now and again, don't even worry about it. Um, yeah. And cheesecake's my other vice. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for for training, we've actually been having a lot of conversation with our athletes on, on the team about nutrition. And so when you're racing, do you have a certain amount of calories per hour that you're targeting to take in? Uh, I haven't really done my nutrition like that. So basically, I figured out what I felt good consuming during a training session of a specific intensity and a specific uh, duration. And then I basically just... Uh, replicated that session for the length or the intensity of the half. So, I mean, I have pretty specific uh, nutrition um, plan, well, obviously very specific nutrition plan for a half because, you know, I've, I've worked out that that's exactly what works for me and so that's what I do. Um, but, yeah, basically it consists of a gel 30 minutes before race start. Um, start the race and then um, have a gel, another caffeinated gel within the first 10K of the bike. And then on the front bottle of my bike, I have electrolyte um, and I have three gels, one caffeinated, two non-caffeinated and a salt tablet opened up into that bottle um, and then just mixed with water. And I have water on the back and I know that I have to consume both the, the bottle with my nutrition and the water. Um, and then I have two additional gels on the bike as well, uh, both non-caffeinated because I have enough caffeine in the other sources that I don't need an additional caffeine. Uh, so that's five gels on the bike with electrolyte and essentially two bottles of liquid. Um, and then once I get out onto the run, I carry one caffeinated, one non-caffeinated gel. Um, and I also take in electrolyte and water. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty standard, but also quite calculated. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it works, right? Like that's what we found. I, I've tried different things, and it always comes back to like gels, um, mm-hmm. just on the belly. And then we've been using like liquid calories. Like uh, Goo has a has a Roctane drink, which seems to work really, mm-hmm. really well. For but it's like you yeah. got to find it, and you got to train. You have to train your belly. Like you have to practice it during training. <laughs> like you shouldn't Definitely, be practicing yeah. your nutrition on race day. No, definitely not. (laughs) And I think for me, like the biggest thing is the consistency of the gels. So Gatorade Endurance have released these gels. Uh, They've just released them caffeinated actually, but this this consistency is is almost like water. They're so liquidy that they're so easy to get down. Um, And for me, I struggled as a younger athlete to find a gel that I could get down without dry heaving. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) or without bringing it back. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, that's all about trying trial and error for those kinds of things. But once you do find something that works, stick to it and definitely, definitely try it in training. Um, so I try to average probably a gel per 20 minutes in a race. Mm. Getting the calories yeah. in. Yeah, it's so important. What we find is it's just the lack of calories. Um, athletes treating the workouts as, you know, opportunities to to shed calories and to really focus on performance and not not have to reach for a bottle or stop for at a gas station to pick up more calories. So we've been, yeah. you know, really uncovering like we need the fuel. We need the fuel. You need and it starts, you know, breakfast whatever meal you had before mm-hmm. so that you finish stronger at the end because I think yeah. we all know what it feels like to bonk or to to get through that run and then, you know, 6 miles in, you have 6 miles, 6 7 miles to go and you're just like faltering. You're just losing it uh, and your focus is yeah. going. So uh, the, the feeling yeah. is just super, super important. Yeah. And you'd rather overfuel than underfuel for sure. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, yeah. These, there's nothing worse than getting to the end of a race and having nothing, nothing more to give. So yeah. Yeah. Have you had a perfect or ideal race yet? Hmm. <laughs> I get asked this a lot, actually. I don't oh, you think do? there's anything, any, yeah, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect race, mm. to be honest. <laughs> Otherwise, if we found perfection, we'd stop uh, trying for it. So, oh, I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I'm getting closer with each one. So, yeah, the harder I work, the more perfect the racing gets. So, mm. uh, I definitely haven't had a perfect race, but yeah, I'm getting closer to it. So at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about, you know, that you do what you love, right? Like that you do what you love. And um, a lot of people get to do that. A lot of people have chosen that, have taken risks to do that. Um, and a lot of people, you know, are, right? Like they're they're in that that response of the body and the mind that says, no, 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 it's too much of a risk. Don't, don't go after what you love. Um, what kind of words could you speak to somebody who's really struggling with that? Like maybe they know what they're doing is not what they love. They, or they have identified what they love, but there's just, they're too scared to take that, to take that risk. And you being somebody who has done what you love for such a long time and, and, um, doesn't seem like you're stopping anytime soon. Any words of advice for somebody or just speaking to the importance of doing what you love? Yeah, well, I, I definitely consider myself one of the lucky ones who's found what I love and, and I get to do it every single day. So anyone who has found what they love and, and is questioning whether to take the risk and potentially make it their 
dream, make it their reality. Um, I, I think go for it. I mean, regret is something. Regret is is uh, far worse than failure. So if you try something and it doesn't work out, at least you tried. I think it's way more important than never trying at all. So I think just go for it and see what happens. And it might change your life for the better. It might not, but at least, at least you know that you, that you did it and you tried and yeah, see what happens. And then for anyone who hasn't found what they love, I mean, keep trying, don't settle, don't give up because once you do find it, it's such a beautiful thing and, and you'll never, no matter how old you are or how late in life, it's never too late because, you know, once you find something you love and you get to do it every single day, it gives you so much purpose to your life that time becomes irrelevant. So I think, yeah, keep searching, keep searching hard, try all these new things, try whatever it is that, you know, sets your soul on fire because, you know, that's what it's all about in the end is just finding things that you love and give you purpose and, you know, add substance to your life and get you up every single day. Yeah. And I think you just gave the recipe to finding your purpose. It's just, what do you love? What do you love? Exactly. Right? Like you, love <laughs> is going to drive you to purpose in your life for sure. Um, yeah. One final, one final question um, before we wrap this up. I know you were challenged when uh, Siri asked, uh, asked for you to go up to 70.3 distance and it was not something that you, you know, fully embraced maybe at first, but now it seems like you have a love for it. Um, I was out riding with Carrie Lester okay. and Scotty D. Philippus the other day and he said, you yeah. must ask Ellie when she is going to go after the Ironman. <laughs> so when is the next challenge going oh. to be met? <laughs> I probably get asked this about twice a week at the moment. <laughs> so I kind of expected this one. <laughs> um, I used to say never, uh, but I also said never to halves and look where I am. So uh, I think it's definitely on the cards in the future, but I feel like while I have this love for halves and this unfinished business and this burning desire to become a world champion at this distance, that I'm going to stick at it. Um, I want to be able to achieve everything that I've set out to achieve in this distance before I then set myself another challenge. So I really like to just work on one big goal at a time and, and you know, hopefully achieve that and then move on to the next one and, you know, keep myself motivated that way. So for now, it's not on the horizon anytime soon, but maybe in the future. Um, it seems that as, as triathletes get older, their bodies kind of more adapt to the the longer endurance uh, workouts and distances. So maybe as I get a little older, then maybe I'll, I'll look, look at racing an Ironman, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're at a. Uh, I think you're at the right distance right now. Mm -hmm. I think everybody would agree with that. But yeah, that question. It's kind of like when you get married, and everyone's like, "When are you when gonna you have, have a kids? baby?" Yeah. And you're like, "Oh yeah. my god, I'll let you know." Back yeah. off. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, this is kind of like my baby. Yeah, yeah, it totally, totally is. It totally is. Oh, Ellie, thank you so much for your time tonight. It was such a pleasure to to talk with you. And we really appreciate everything you shared with our audience. I know they're going to appreciate it as well. And um, hopefully someday we'll cross paths in the physical at, at a race. Maybe the world yeah, championship. Yeah, thank you for having St. me. George, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe in, in St. George. Time, man. <laughs> yeah, there we go, hopefully. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.